After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you bless now the preaching of your word, that it would be for the good of your people to hear and to receive, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. Not that we would simply think about and keep in our heads uh, what we hear, but by your Spirit's power, it will trickle into our inner being, and form us and shape us in the way that you would desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, I've been in pastoral ministry long enough uh, to notice that most believers, in my experience, separate their Christian... Oh, Is this on? Working? Great. Yeah, I am so mic'd up here. You could probably hear me in Kenya. Uh, no, but it's been my experience that in, in pastoral ministry um, that really Christians have a tendency to do um, these two things, to really bifurcate, separate their Christian discipleship into two categories. Um, on the one hand, you have the things that are the, the must of the Christian life. Uh, what are the things that a Christian should do, uh, attend Sunday worship, read the Bible, uh, pray? And these are the practices of the Christian life that we often assume uh, is faithful, is obedient. But then there are, of course, those practices in the Christian life that sometimes are considered a bit extracurricular. Uh, they're good to do, but they're not absolutely essential to every person. They're sort of like, if you remember in high school taking an AP class, an advanced placement class, they're good to have, impressive for college, but they're not, ter it's not terrible if you don't have them. And, and I think there are things in the Christian life that we view sort of like an AP level uh, class, uh, in this case, you know, an advanced practice or advanced pietism or something like that. And, and in that category, there are things like um, evangelism or tithing, or hospitality, and even missions. It's good to do, uh, but only the really serious and mature Christians should be about those things. And often, therefore, when we look around and we see some other Christians doing it, uh, we're a bit relieved that we're off the hook, that we don't have to do those things. But here's what we need to understand. A failure to grasp and understand missions as the primary task of the church and as a central concern in the life of the Christian is ultimately a failure to understand God's heart and thus to miss out on what he's doing in the world. The scriptures, beginning from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, unfold through its pages God's heart. And yesterday we looked briefly at God's missionary heart in Genesis. Today I want to look at God's global heart from the book of Revelation. 
Because how the Bible starts and how the Bible ends, where history begins and where history will conclude, all of this helps us live in the time between. And these two poles help us determine the priorities of God so that we would adopt them as our own. Now, the book of Revelation, in it, uh, the Apostle John records for us a heavenly vision, the end toward which God is leading and taking all of human history. He gives us a, a picture of the summation of all things on that final day in Jesus Christ. It's like God is pulling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse of what that final destination will look like. And knowing where we're headed should change everything about how we are living presently. Think about it like this. Are you familiar with Legos? And some of you remember playing with Legos in your childhood. Others of you in your adulthood remember stepping on Legos. But however you think of Legos, I mean, on the one hand, there are some of us who when we imagine Legos, we think of a bucket full of various size and, and colors and, and shapes of assorted pieces. And when you play with Legos, you build whatever your creative mind inspires you to build. So from that same box of Legos, you could come up with a hundred different creations. But others of you, when you think of Legos, you imagine a box with a, a design on its cover, and everything in that box is given to you with a purpose of putting that design together. It could be the Death Star, it could be a Batmobile, it could be you know, something from Minecraft. And the point is that you successfully put together all the pieces only when what you end up with looks like something like the picture on the box. Human history is like the latter, not the former. We don't get to determine where things are headed. God has already revealed it to us. Revelation 7 is like one of those pictures on the boxes. It gives you the end toward which God is directing all human history. And it's this scene of international worship in heaven. That's where God is taking us. And so I like to summarize the main point of my sermon uh, in a sentence, and here it is this morning. The glorious global ending in heaven fuels generous gospel sending on earth. Let me say that again. The glorious global ending in heaven fuels generous gospel sending on earth. So let's get started. Here in Revelation 7, we see heaven is described, but not quite as we would expect. Sometimes when we think of heaven, we think of a quiet, serene, and secluded place far away from the busyness and the bustle of the city, a place sort of like a garden where we spend alone time with God. But that's not how the Bible describes heaven, is it? Heaven is actually pictured as an international city. It's loud, it's populated, there's singing, worship constantly happening, voices are raised, praises are sung. If you look at this scene in Revelation 7, you'll notice lots of activity, lots of movement. Now, before we begin reading in verse 9, let's review verses 1 to 8 for context. If you look in your Bibles at verses 1 to 8, it's an interesting scene that describes the sealing of 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel. Now, for some of you, that may mean something. For others of you, it may mean absolutely nothing. You know, as a kid growing up in Maryland, 
Uh, quite frequently on Saturday mornings, there'd be a knock at our front door. I always remember Saturday mornings because it always interrupted Saturday morning cartoons. And without fail, unless it was winter and snowing, there would be a family of Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were passing out this material, their literature called the Watchtower. And I can very clearly remember flipping through them because they were well illustrated, and that this number, 144,000, repeatedly came up in their literature. And in case you didn't know, the Jehovah's Witnesses take this number to be literal. They believe it means that only 144,000 people since the time of Jesus will enter into heaven. 144,000, no more, no less, will be given spiritual bodies. They'll be in heaven, and then all the other believers will be given fleshly bodies, and we must stay on earth. Now, I bring that up only because When you think about the number 144,000, you think about these earlier verses, you can get sidetracked to try to interpret them, but when you do, you actually miss the spiritual significance because the focus isn't so much on the number, the focus is on who is sealed. We see here in Revelation 7 that it's the tribes of the sons of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. Now let me ask you a question, why What Apostle John record these two visions right next to one another. And I think it's in order for us to compare and contrast. You see, after reading about 144,000 people sealed from the tribe of Israel, verse 9 goes on to say that John sees a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and people and uh, tribe and uh, nation and, and languages. You see, here's what's happening. John looks on the one hand and he sees the 12 tribes of Israel and then he looks and he sees a different image. He sees now the church of Jesus Christ, which includes Jews and Gentiles. And what he actually sees here is that the church is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Ethnic Israel wasn't it. God always intended for Israel to point to the church of Christ. And you can see that because the details contrast with one another. One is how things began, the the other is how things will end. You see, God began with one nation, the nation of Israel, but he will end with, what does it say, a great multitude from every nation. God began with 12 tribes from Israel, but he will end with a great multitude from all tribes. God began with 144,000 numbered in Israel, but he will end with a great multitude that cannot be numbered. You see, God's plan of salvation always included more than ethnic Israel. His heart was for the nations from the very beginning. As early as Genesis 3, as we saw last night, uh, God reveals his missionary heart. But as early as Genesis 12, we see God revealing his global heart. Because Genesis 12 records for us a promise that God gave to Abram. If you remember this, let me read it for you. There in Genesis 12, one to three, it's that God says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the Old Testament, God called Abram in order that through this one family, he would bring a blessing to many families. 
And as he later promises that he would make Abram a great nation so that he would bring a blessing to many nations. In fact, you know this because Abram later goes through a name change. Do you know what his name is changed to? Abraham. In Genesis 17, God says, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Here's the point. If you want to see and sense God's global missionary heart, don't just read a few verses here and there out of context. Take the whole corpus of what God has said from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll see his global desire to bring a people to himself. One person was always meant to bless many people. One family was always meant to bless many families. One nation was always meant to bless many nations. And so we get in our passage today that the fruit of Revelation 7 sprouted from the seed of Genesis 12. That the hope of Revelation was already sowed into the promise of Genesis. That from start to finish, from beginning to end, promise to fulfillment, seed to fruit, Genesis to Revelation. God has been in the process of bringing his salvation blessings to every nation from all tribes and all peoples and all languages. He's the God of global missions. So then the church engages in missions not because God has failed and needs our help, but because God is inviting us to participate in this great work he is doing to make the heavenly vision of Revelation 7 a reality. What we see in these verses is the picture on that box, the glorious and global ending in heaven. I bring this up, Jordan Valley Church, because human history is like a steam train. God is, con- is the conductor. The destination is the eternal international worship in heaven. And if that's where God is going, if that's where the train is headed, when he says all aboard, is this church going to be on board or will, be, or will we be left on the platform? You're either going to be on board with what God is doing in the world or you're not. We see in verse 9 that this great multitude is standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They're, they're clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands because one day the nations, the nations, will be gathered before the slain Lamb. They'll be standing before Him righteous as signified by the white robes and they will worship Him. And if that's where we're all headed, If that's where we're all going, what are you doing to invest in and prioritize and pray for this reality to come about? Because the destination determines the decisions that you make now. How does this picture the glorious global ending in heaven determine the decisions that this church is making that you yourselves personally as Christians are making. You know, if you step out of your home to go pick up some groceries, what do you need to take with you? Not much, your wallet and your keys. You may think you need to take your phone with you because you feel naked without it. You don't need your phone, trust me, it's still safe. (laughs) 
you need your wallet and your keys. If you're taking a family trip to the mountains, what do you need? Well, if you're like me, you, you need a phone because reading a, a map is a lost art. Um, but you need what? You, you need your hiking boots, some snacks, drinks, a jacket. Why? Because the destination determines the decisions you make. Now, if you're taking a trip to Cancun, Mexico, it's time your destination determines your decisions. You don't bring your hiking boots, you bring sandals. You don't bring your jacket, you bring your swim trunks and your bathing suit. The destination changes your priorities. The destination determines your decisions. If the ultimate destination is this glorious international worship scene, this beautiful, diverse multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribe and people and language, then what decisions are you making now in light of that? What kinds of things are you stewarding your finances toward? What are you investing your time and money into? What are the topics and the themes of your prayers what realities are burdening your heart? You see, the ending of heaven has a significant impact on how you view the sending here and now. Because do you know that, that heaven will be filled with more than just members of Jordan Valley Church? In fact, heaven will be filled with far more than just PCA churches and members. You know, I'm proud to be Presbyterian. I love being in the PCA, but I know heaven will be filled with Baptists and Methodists and even non-denominational folk, uh, Charismatics and Pentecostals. I'm preparing myself on that final day to see a lot more hands raised in worship than I'm used to seeing in my PCA church. It'll be glorious. I'm looking forward to it. But listen, heaven will be filled with far more than just American Christians. Remember that Babel led to a curse of many languages, but in heaven, that'll be transformed into a chorus of many languages. The pleasing harmonies in that great worship won't just be notes layered on top of the melody. That great harmony will be the various dialects on top of the accents on top of the languages all lifted up to the Lord in unison. If heaven will be filled with the glorious praise of a global multitude, what is this church and its members doing in light of that end? What steps are being taken? What strategies are being employed and put together so that sending is being done and stewardship is being exercised so that the gospel might make it to the nations? And this is a monumental task and you may be wondering, how can a local church make such a global impact? And the answer, of course, is not by your might, but by the strength of the Lord. Do you know that for God, size has never been an obstacle? He preserved the world through eight in an ark. He, did, he defeated an, an army through Gideon's 300. He delivered Israel from Goliath through the shepherd boy David. He gave his great commission to a wavering 11. He defeated sin and Satan through death on a cross. 
That means in faithful and humble service to our God, he can use this church and the prayers and the giving of its saints for his glorious global purposes. As a church, as you plan and prepare and steward and send and give and go so that more and more from among the nations would be gathered right there beside you on that final day before the lamb clothed in white robes. How and what can you be doing now? Well, it all begins with motivation. You see, friends, the only reason that you'll be part of that great multitude, yourself numbered among brothers and sisters of those various tribes and nations and peoples and tongues, is because the gospel went out from Jerusalem, out to Judea, out to Samaria, and it reached the end of the earth because it reached you. Whether it reached you here in America or reached you in another country, or if you're like me, reached your parents in another country, the gospel only reached you because it went out through the faithful, obedient witness of others in history so that you might know Christ and join the great multitude. You're only part of that multitude because through the slain lamb of God who gave himself up for you, you were clothed in his white robes, washed clean by his blood and presented perfectly righteous before him. It's only through Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf that you are saved. It's the only way that anybody can be saved. So then on that final day, your voice will join the global chorus, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, the more your eyes are fixed upon Jesus, the more you'll delight to hear all the varied voices joined together in praise of his name. The more you are transfixed and held by the glory and the beauty of Christ, will you desire and long to see the nations worshiping him. In two chapters earlier in Revelation 5, the angels and the elders sang about this lamb. There in Revelation 5, we read these words, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you know Jesus doesn't just want praise in Greek or Hebrew or English. He wants it in every language and from every tongue. He wants it from every tribe and people and nation. That's why he's claimed and ransomed and died for a great multitude. Jesus came to win the international praise of his people. And until he receives it on that final day, he has called and commissioned his church to collect his reward. So how then does the glorious global ending in heaven fuel gospel sending on earth. Let me suggest just two things for you. First, would you pray about going on missions? Would you pray about going on missions? Every single one of you should pray about this. Now, it may seem totally extreme, impractical, but hear me out. I'm encouraging all to pray about going on missions, but I'm not suggesting that all go. In fact, it'd be unwise for all to go. Not all are called. But 
It's only as everybody begins to pray that some begin to hear and sense God's call to go. It says everybody prays for discernment that then some discern and discover God's will. You know, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you now, if nobody prays about going, then no one will receive the call. Nobody will have ears to hear. And so pray something as simple as this, Lord, would you have me go? Would it please you to send me? Would you make the way possible and make your will clear? And supplies to all of you, grandparents, those who are retired, those with young families and young children, yes, even, even the youth students, pray about going on missions. And here's why this is so incredibly helpful. When all pray, and God makes it clear for some to go, then at the same time, he'll also make it clear for others not to go, which makes this second application a whole lot easier, which is this, send by praying and giving. Because listen, if you're convinced God is calling you not to go, then it makes it easy because you can know with 100% certainty that God is calling you to send by giving and praying. It's as easy as that. You know, John Piper says it a little bit more bluntly and forcefully. He says, there are only three responses to missions, go, send, or be disobedient. <laughs> well, dear friends, if you're sure that God is not calling you to go, and that may in fact be most of you in this room, then you can know with conviction that God is calling you then to participate in the work of somebody else going. If you're not being sent, you should be involved in sending. You're called to partner through prayer and giving and, and helping those who have discerned the call to go. And ultimately, you can be generous with your stewardship by looking at the generosity of your Savior. Right? Jesus, the King, although rich became poor for you. Jesus, the Son, laid aside his interest to put yours above his own. Jesus, the Lord, was stripped naked so that you might be clothed in white robes. Jesus, the Lamb, gave up his life so that you could have yours eternally. Only the gospel fuels and empowers the type of generous giving and sacrifice that makes sending possible. What might it look like for you to send? What sacrifices might you need to make? What priorities might need to be restructured? What comforts might need to be scaled back? What prayers need to be offered? The ending should fuel your sending as you pray and give so that the Lord would continue to send new laborers out into his harvest. And when you catch the vision of God's heart from Genesis to Revelation, missions becomes neither unnecessary and extracurricular, nor does it become guilt-driven and legalistic, but your heart becomes greatly burdened in joy and delight and conviction and desire so that missions becomes a must in the Christian life. Let me close with this story. George Stott was a, a British missionary to China in the 1800s. Uh, when he was 19 years old, he was involved in an accident where he slipped on the road, hit his knee against a rock, and suffered such a terrible injury that eventually required amputating his left leg. For nine months, he was bedridden in a helpless condition, and he considered just how 
miserable and ruined his life and future was. But it was there and then in that condition that the Lord saved him and called him. Now when George Stott recovered, he began working as a teacher until he heard of a man named Hudson Taylor who was looking to recruit pioneer missionaries in a new organization he was starting called the China Inland Mission. And George Stott's wife, Grace, wrote a book about their time in China, and I just want to read you a short excerpt from it. This is what, it, what she writes. In accepting Mr. Stott for mission work, Hudson Taylor manifested faith, for no society would have sent an amputee to such a country to pioneer work. And Mr. Stott often referred with gratitude to Mr. Taylor's acceptance of him. When asked why he, George, with only one leg, should think of going to China, his remark was, I do not see those with two legs going, so I must. <laughs> so off George Stott went to China, and there he served for 20 years as a missionary before cancer took him home to be with the Lord. And I share that story because his is an incredible one of zeal and conviction for missions and for the lost in China. Now, if anybody had an excuse not to go, if anybody had a legitimate reason to stay in America and leave missions up to others, it'd be someone like George Stott. And yet, listen again to what he said. I do not see those with two legs going, so I must. The must of missions. That burning sense of the priority and the primacy of going forth to the nations with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Dear friends, fueled by the vision of the great multitude from Revelation 7, may you all, by the Holy Spirit working in you, sense the must of missions like George Stott. And pray that the Holy Spirit would place such urgency vision into your heart so that you feel the must, whether that be in going yourself, by sending through prayer and giving. One day Jesus will collect the reward for which he came and died, and we will join that great multitude, whether you sing in English or Spanish or Korean, we will join that global course and that great international scene in heaven. To that end, let us pray and labor, partner, send, give, and go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that in your word, from the very opening pages of scripture to the very last pages, uh, we see your heart unfolded, disclosed, revealed to us. It is a heart that seeks after the lost, seeks after the hiding, and seeks to claim for yourself this great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. To that end, O oh Lord, I pray that you would press it upon the saints here at Jordan Valley Church to participate in the work that you are doing. And in that way, Lord, that you would use this church mightily, this small local church, for your great global purposes. Do it, Lord, for only you can do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.